All right, let's go ahead this morning and look at paragraph number three in our confession this morning, dealing with the chapter entitled of the assurance of grace and salvation. This morning, I want to deal with the subject that is found in the first line of paragraph three, which is the phrase, the essence of faith, the essence of faith. And I mentioned to you last Sunday, if you thought about it this week, to think about that phrase, to think about that expression, the essence of faith. And so we are going to deal with that thought this morning, but I do want to read through the first paragraph and then we'll give you some introductory comments regarding this paragraph, kind of an overview of uh, what this paragraph is about, the subject it's dealing with, and so we'll deal with that introduction this morning. But let's look there at paragraph three. It says, this infallible assurance doth not so belong to the essence of faith, but that a true believer may wait long and conflict with many difficulties before he be partaker of it. Yet, being enabled by the Spirit to know the things which are freely given him of God, he may, without extraordinary revelation, in the right use of means attain thereunto, and therefore... It is the duty of everyone to give all diligence to make his calling and election sure, that thereby his heart may be enlarged in peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, in love and thankfulness to God, and in strength and cheerfulness in the duties of obedience. The proper fruits of this assurance, so far is it from inclining men to looseness. When we think about this essence of faith, and we think about the Christian experience, it is possible that a new believer, a person we would refer to as a new Christian, may from the very moment of their conversion have assurance. But that is not the experience of every believer. In other words, not every believer comes away from their conversion with this full assurance of their salvation. The third paragraph of the confession here is dealing with how we should view and how we should deal assurance. What it is recognizing is that a true believer, again, that's the key, a true believer may wait a long extended period of time and be in conflict with many difficulties before he or she fully becomes a partaker, not of conversion, but of assurance. In other words, a person can be saved and still have a lack of assurance. Now, I realize what I just said can be a very controversial statement because we have, for many, many decades now, we have intertwined saving faith and assurance as the same. We have said that in order to know that you're saved, in order for saving faith to quote-unquote be effectual, we also have to have full assurance of that. Now again, the Bible throughout Scripture does not teach that a person has to have assurance in order to be saved. In other words, it doesn't say, in order to be saved, you must be assured that you, know that you, that you are saved. Now it does say, scripturally, as we looked last week and we'll look today, we can know. We can know. But it doesn't say that that's a condition of saving faith. In other words, when we begin to connect the two together and we say, you must have both, 
or you cannot have the other. When we say today that if I was to make this blanket statement and look at all of you and I say, if you don't have assurance of your salvation today, you're not saved, I would be making an unbiblical assumption. I would be saying to you that your assurance equals saving faith. And yet the Bible does not connect those two as saying you must repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ with all of your heart and then be assured of your saving faith. Now again, how do we deal with this? Is the paragraph and the confession writers telling us we don't have to be concerned about this? We don't have to do anything about it? Absolutely not. As a matter of fact, we're dealing with the subject of the essence of faith, but if I was to give you a thesis statement, or what is this paragraph trying to prove to us, it's teaching us that there, there is the great importance and responsibility of every believer to have assurance of salvation. In other words, you are supposed to diligently seek for your assurance. You are not to rely on someone else telling you, you can know that you're saved. Now, most evangelism today, and I want you to hear me, hear me well and hear me carefully so that we don't misunderstand what we're saying here. Most evangelism begins with, do you know for sure if you were to die right now that you would go to heaven? That's where a lot of evangelism starts. Evangelism is not to start with something that may not come right away. Not every person can answer that question, but do I draw this conclusion? If you and I are talking at a restaurant one day and we're talking over coffee and something just comes up and I look across the table at you and I say, do you know that if you died right now, you would go to heaven? If you answered back and said, well, I, ha I do have some doubts. I have some lingering questions. Can I truthfully declare you unsaved? No, I cannot. No, I cannot. And if I'm doing that, then I am connecting your assurance with being an element of your salvation, the actual conversion. Now, again, that does not let us off the map and say, well, good, I don't have to do anything. No, we are to make our salvation and our assurance of that salvation sure. We are to take steps to be sure that we do have this assurance. Now again, again, don't misunderstand me. That question, do you know for sure if you were to die right now that you'd go to heaven, it's not an unimportant question. But what, my, what, I'm, what I'm submitting to you this morning is that it's not the essential point of saving faith. That's the point. It's not the question of evangelism that you lead off an evangelistic conversation with. And yet, most of our churches for many, many years have been taught that's where you start. What would you say if a person says, in their own understanding, if I was to ask you, do you know if you died right now you'd go to heaven, if they tell me yes, does that necessarily mean they're going to heaven? No. Because they could be depending on a lot of other things that are getting them to heaven. There are people who are relying on their good works and they'll answer that question by telling you, yes, I'm sure I'm going to heaven. And do you see, do you know how many times in our churches we've used that as our gauge as to say, okay, here's how you can tell if someone is saved. 
And then, sadly, the preacher emotionally pulls the heartstrings and says, listen, if you're doubting this assurance, just come and and get this settled one final time. Yet, guess what the confession writers were talking about? They were saying this is actually a difficult thing to come to a place where you have this assurance and it's going to be dealt with conflict and it might even be dealt with times when you have some doubts. It's the number one reason people think they're not saved is because they're doubting and they're, they're having some struggles with their assurance. Now, preachers and pastors have tried to combat this by saying, well, okay, you're having trouble with assurance, so let's start over and let's go back to the beginning and repeat all of the questions that you answered the first time. And sadly, the pastor goes back to the initial question that's the wrong starting point and says, do you know for sure if you died right now, you go to heaven? Well, of course I don't because that's my problem. I'm having an issue with my assurance. So why would I start with assurance again? We have to go back to what we learned last week about the infallible assurance and understanding those three foundational stones. That first foundational stone that's founded on the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. And we have to remember that there is the the graces and the moving of the Holy Spirit that gives us this wisdom and discernment to understand it. But we have to understand that there are examples all throughout Scripture where people were having some questions about whether or not God was still for them. Almost as if, I'm really not sure, God, did you cast me off? A couple of these examples I want to look at this morning. One of them is in Psalm 77. This one's titled as a Psalm of Asaph. Now, these two two, uh, verses and chapters I'm going to give you this morning, these are believers. And these are people who are speaking in a way as if they're wondering if God has forsaken them. Verse, verse 1 of Psalm 77 says, I cried unto God with my voice, even unto God with my voice, and he gave ear unto me. In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. My sore ran in the night and ceased not. My soul refused to be comforted. I remembered God and was troubled. I complained and my spirit was overwhelmed. Thou holdest mine eyes waking. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I have considered the days of old, the years of ancient times. I call to remembrance my song in the night. I commune with mine own heart and my spirit made diligent search. Will the Lord cast me off or cast off forever? And will he be favorable no more? Is his mercy clean, gone forever? Doth his promise fail forevermore? Hath God forgotten to be gracious? Hath he in anger shut up his tender mercies? This is a series of questions that the psalmist is asking. These are questions that a person's asking that wonders, am I really still God's? Do I still belong to him? Or has he cast me off? And I said, this is my infirmity, but I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember thy wonders of old. I will meditate also of all thy work and talk of thy doings. Thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Who is so great a God as our God? Thou art the God that doest wonders. Thou hast declared thy strength among the people. Thou hast 
with thine arm redeemed thy people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph. The waters saw thee, O God, the waters saw thee. They were afraid, the depths also were troubled. The clouds poured out water, the sky sent out a sound, thine arrows also went abroad. The voice of thy thunder was in the heaven, the lightnings lightened the whole the world, the earth trembled and shook. The way is in the sea, and thy path in the great waters, thy footsteps are not known. Thou leadest thy people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. The expressions that this psalmist is dealing with, being cast off, not having God's favor, not having God's mercy, God's promises somehow failing, God forgotten to be gracious, has he shut up his tender mercies? And he says, this is my infirmity. This is my struggle. This is my question. This is not a seeker. This is a believer who is questioning everything and is doubting whether or not God has cast him off. Now again, sometimes we get feeling that way and suddenly we start doubting our salvation. Well, maybe I'm not really a believer because I shouldn't feel this way. I shouldn't doubt these things. Yet the confession writers knew by taking scripture we're going to look at this morning, they knew that this being a partaker of this assurance comes with great diligence and is going to come with conflict. We've sadly taught people for so long that if you're truly in Christ, then you know it from the moment you say the prayer. And sadly, we've led a lot of people astray that way. We've made the grand mistake of telling people they're saved. That's one of the greatest errors of the church is when we decided to play God and say, I'm going to declare you saved by what you say. When only God can know the heart. Only God can know if that person's truly saved. Again, it's not an unimportant issue. But the question is, is, this, is that the essence of faith? Is it the foremost principal point? We won't read the whole psalm, but if you turn over a couple of psalms over to Psalm 88, this is another psalm, and yet the psalmist begins the psalm by saying, O Lord God of my salvation. He makes a declaration that he knows that it is God who is his salvation. I have cried day and night before thee. Let my prayer come before thee. Incline thine ear unto my cry, for my soul is full of troubles, and my life draweth nigh unto the grave. I am counted with them that go down into the pit. I am as a man that hath no strength." Free among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, whom thou rememberest no more, and they are cut off from thy hand. Thou hast laid me in the lowest pit, in darkness in the deeps. Thy wrath lieth hard upon me, and thou hast afflicted me with all thy waves. Now you see that little word Selah there. That, that's, they are put there in the Psalms because they're intended for us to stop and consider and ponder all that was just said. He starts off by saying, O God of my salvation. And then he says, I am like the dead that's been slain and I'm lying in the grave when thou rememberest no more and they are cut off from thy hand. This is a man, a psalmist, that is dealing with the conflict of assurance. We think rough patches in our Christian life 
are times when we're brought to say, I doubt my salvation instead of saying, no, my problem is I'm struggling with the assurance of what God's already declared to be. And there's a great difference in what I just said. A lack of assurance should not lead you to doubt your salvation in totality. But we've made the connection saying, if I don't have assurance, I must be unsaved. And somehow we've also made the fallacy that if I have assurance, but I could have assurance in the wrong thing, and I could say my assurance assures me that I'm saved, well, what if I'm, my assurance is in the wrong person or the wrong thing? Now, is assurance possible? Absolutely. And that's what this paragraph is teaching us. If you drop down a, a few verses, uh, look what he says in verse 14. Lord, why castest thou off my soul? Wow. This is a believer, O Lord, the God of my salvation. Why have you cast off my soul? There's a real struggle here. Why hidest thou thy face from me? I am afflicted and ready to die from my youth up while I suffer thy terrors. I am distracted. Thy fierce wrath goeth over me. Thy terrors have cut me off. They came round about me daily like water. They compass me about together. Lover and friend hast thou put far from me and mine acquaintances into darkness. The point in reading those Psalms is to see that the book of Psalms even repeatedly describes real believers in a condition in which they lacked assurance. John in the epistles... 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, an entire epistle, an entire letter are written to a group of people that had faith with the object, the objective of those epistles was to bring those people to the assurance of salvation. 1 John is all about bringing believers to an assurance of their salvation. 1 John in its purity and its true context is not an evangelistic epistle. It is a letter about assurance. Because even the people in John's day were having struggles with assurance. I've heard so much bad counsel over the years about what to do when you have lack assurance. All the way down to, well, just get rebaptized. In a Baptist church, just get baptized. So that's going to solve my issue? So something that was never meant to be saving, something that was never really meant in and of itself, that's what's going to give me assurance now? And sadly, we have sometimes hard-hearted people who look across the table and say, what is the matter with you? Why can't you just get this assurance thing settled? Because if you study Scripture, you find out that it says it's going to be filled with conflict, and you might just find yourself like these psalmists saying, Lord, why have you cast me off? Why do I feel like your wrath is on my head? Why do I feel like those who lie in the grave and are dead? And yet they were believers. So obviously what we have here is the writer, John especially, did not assume that the presence of saving faith was accompanied by assurance. While assurance is not essential to saving faith, it is vitally important. So this is what paragraph 3 says. Therefore, it is the duty of every believer to give all diligence to make his calling and election sure. That is a direct quote from 2 Peter 1, verses 10 through 11, which we read last week. Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, you shall never fall. 
For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we're starting off on that, that starting place, that starting block. So the first point that we want to look at this morning, we'll probably break this up into two weeks, is just a simple heading, the difficulty attaining assurance. The difficulty attaining assurance. That first phrase, this infallible assurance doth not so belong to the essence of faith, but that a true believer may wait long and conflict with many difficulties before he be partaker of it. He may have real struggles. He may have a period of time where he is, he is conflicted by the reality of this assurance that he is so desperately looking for. So the main point here is that not everyone receives infallible assurance the moment they truly believe in Christ. Folks, don't victimize people for lacking in assurance. Don't tell them you must have a spiritual problem because you should know and you shouldn't have a struggle with this. I would have liked for you in the day if you could have been alive when David was alive, to have walked up to David and said, told David, you know what? Why are you struggling with your assurance? David struggled with his assurance. David had moments of out and out doubt. And yet we have a Christian that goes through a time of lack of assurance or goes through whatever time it is. And we say, there's something wrong with your faith because you should have settled this years ago. According to who? The Bible doesn't give a timeline as to when, the, when you become a full partaker of this assurance. It doesn't say it's going to happen at the moment you pray the prayer. It doesn't say it's going to happen your first day as a member of a church. It doesn't say it's going to happen at your baptism. You might struggle your whole life getting to the place. But what's our responsibility? We are to diligently make our election and our calling sure. That means we are to do things that foster our assurance. You just sitting at a chair and saying, okay, God, give me assurance is not what the Bible says. Now, prayer is part of it. Prayer is part of asking God. But folks, the Bible tells us that there are things we are supposed to be doing to make our election and calling sure. So the paragraph starts off with this very important, though very controversial statement. It indicates that the assurance of salvation does not belong to the essence of faith. This means that someone could be truly saved and have genuine faith and not be sure they're saved for various reasons. Now, the word essence in its purest form simply means the most significant element, quality, or aspect of a thing or person. So what they are saying is, is that assurance is not the essential, most significant element of our salvation. And yet, modern-day evangelism starts off on that point. I'm, I'm hearing street preachers that are starting with that point. Now again, it's not an important question. Do you know for sure if you die today, you'd go to heaven? It's not important. It is an important question. But is it the essential first question we should be asking? Or... Should we be given the actual gospel that declares what faith actually is? Where faith comes from? 
Who is the author of faith? Who is the giver of faith? The command of the gospel is to repent and believe. It's not repent and believe and be sure. It's repent and believe. Now, in its purest form, when I repent and believe, I should trust God that what he's promised is actually going to happen. If I believe God and I'm truly there, and again, it doesn't mean I'm not going to struggle with it, but if we take God at his word, he says, all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So if assurance was the essence of faith, in other words, if it was the essential first element, then we would have to conclude and to doubt that a person's salvation would automatically mean that if you don't have assurance, then you don't have faith. So all, those, all that I just mentioned, if any of you today lack assurance, I would have to then turn around and declare, if you lack assurance today, that means you're unsaved. Now, can you be here today without assurance that you're saved and actually be unsaved? Yes, you can be. But you can also be saved and still be struggling with your assurance and still be wondering and doubting some things, but that doesn't mean you don't have saving faith. You can see why this is a controversial statement because we've, always, we've tied them together for so long. The key verse is that verse we saw in 1 John 5.13. It is the key of the epistle. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God. John says... I'm writing to you who have believed on the Son of God. He settles the essential question. The essential element is not, are you sure you go to heaven when you die? The essential element is, have you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you repented of your sins? Not, are you sure you'd go to heaven? John goes on and says, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. And this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. So John writes to those who already believe, those who already have faith, so that they may know, have assurance that they have eternal life. John is drawing a clear line between faith and assurance and is implying that someone can have genuine faith but not know that they're saved for certain. In addition, nothing can be the object of saving faith but what God has revealed in the Bible. So I've got to ask myself the question, am I trusting in the right thing first before I ever ask the question, am I sure I'm saved? That's a very different, that's a very different question. So I might ask that person that I'm having coffee with, not, are you sure when you die you're going to go to heaven? I might start that conversation by saying, what are you trusting in for your salvation? Or who are you trusting in for your salvation? That's my starting point. Folks, there are millions of people in this world who think they're going to heaven when you ask them that question. Watch, watch street evangelists ask those questions. Ask, watch them say, do you know for sure you go to heaven when you die? And watch how many people say, I'm going to heaven. And they are confident of it. Now again, if, if that evangelist goes on and asks more clarifying questions, then he can start with that question, but he better clarify what it means to know that you're going to heaven. 
there's really not been a moment in my life, and I think even before my conversion, that I even entertained the thought that I wasn't going to heaven. So even as a child, there was an awareness in me, even though I wasn't really converted at that point, that I always thought I was going to go to heaven. I was all, it, it just was something that I thought, it was a foregone conclusion. I grew up in a Christian home. I grew up in a church. I don't know what it is to not be in church. I have no idea what it is to have a life that doesn't go to church. That's my heritage. But yet, I always just assumed, and if you'd asked me as a five-year-old, are you going to heaven? I'd have told you yes. And I'd have told you I'm certain of it in my own five-year-old mind. But again... It cannot be the object of saving faith cannot be anything than that what is revealed in the Bible. So in other words, the truths that believers place their faith in are from the Word of God. And those truths are true whether you believe them or not. So if it says repent and believe the gospel and you repent and believe the gospel, that's true. If you lack assurance that there's more, it's not the Bible's, it's not the Scripture's problem. That's we're dealing with a lack of assurance. But what happens when people lack assurance? They always go back to, did I do everything right? The Bible doesn't say, go back and make sure you did everything right. It goes back and tells us, make sure you're trusting in the right person. That's tremendously different. I've watched this happen too many times, a person trying to give somebody assurance. You're trying to give somebody something you're not empowered to do. Now, I can give them Scripture. I can give them these truths. But what they're struggling to take in as true is not a problem with the Scriptures. It's a problem with the person. And that's where the, that's where the problem comes. It's not a problem with how God has done it. So the promises of salvation are based upon, people often say salvation is not conditional. Salvation is conditional. It's based on faith and repentance. There are conditions to salvation. We don't believe, like the hyper-Calvinist does, that you just sit there and you don't do anything and God will just miraculously just overtake you and you don't have to, you don't have to repent, you don't have to believe, he's already marked you out. Folks, that's why hyper-Calvinists don't believe in any evangelism because they say we have nothing to do with it. Everything God does and what it does is it leaves man being able to excuse his own behavior saying, well, I can act like I want because God hasn't marked me out so I'll do whatever I want to do. That's not the gospel. It is based upon faith. It is based upon repentance. So people believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and His finished work in order to be saved. Once they know that they've met the conditions of salvation, at that moment, you have genuine faith. But you might not have full assurance quite yet. I hope we're seeing the point here. So can a person who lacks assurance, who has been saved based on the condition of Scripture, conclude that they're saved and yet still be struggling with assurance? I think both can exist. It has to be acknowledged that because of faith is described best as trust, the very beginning point of our assurance is found in what saving faith actually is. 
So full assurance is based upon that infallible assurance we learned last week, those three foundational stones, which includes the blood and righteousness of Christ, the evidence and the fruit that tells us that we are a child of God. So the confession concludes that some believers may struggle with this assurance of salvation. So what do we know, what what we've heard so far? So we know there's a difficulty, but we also know there's a provision for attaining assurance. Look what it says, the second phrase. Yet being enabled by the Spirit to know the things which are freely given of Him, He may, without extraordinary revelation, in the right use of means, attain thereunto. In the right use of means. In our Reformed churches, we refer to these as the means of grace. These are the common things in which we do that help build and give us assurance. In 1 John 4.13, John wrote these words, Hereby know we that we dwell in Him and He in us because He hath given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love, and that he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. So the provision for assurance is the Spirit of God and the gift of the means of grace. So what's the emphasis? The emphasis is on the provision that is common to every believer. What does every believer get at conversion? The indwelling spirit. Across the board. There is no believer who's living now who can say, I am saved, I am converted, I'm on my way to heaven, but I don't have the spirit of God dwelling within me. Yet there are churches that say, I have to call the Spirit to me every day. Spirit, come back to me. Spirit, come back. And what they're missing the point is you can have the Spirit and still be struggling with assurance. What are these means of grace? What's the purpose of the means of grace? Now, these are not extraordinary things. And that's what the confession writers said. It's it's without extraordinary revelation. Folks, one of, one of the things we, we make such a, a mistake doing is we have gotten our churches into a place where we believe that something extraordinary, something out of this world has to happen in order to say, God really met with us today. I have one church in mind and I'm not going to call it out, but I'm just telling you, that church has something extraordinary happen every service. And I'm not talking like run-of-the-mill extraordinary. I'm talking like that's the only place on this planet that God's actually working. I mean, it is like, how do you not have services when God and the Spirit so moves over the congregation that people fall on their face before God in repentance of their sin? Now, that would be an extraordinary move. But everything I see is God moving in an extraordinary way of saying just how good we have it. And folks, we do have it good. But if you think that that little clip I shared with you, that's extraordinary. And yet, they were doing something that is one of the simple means of grace. 
The means of grace are not extraordinary activities we do. The, the means of grace are the things that we do every single week when we meet as a church. You realize that one of the means of grace is when we read the scriptures together, when we pray together, when we fellowship together, when we take the Lord's Supper together, when we watch somebody who is baptized as a profession of their faith and they're making that public. Now, if I told you and I went home today and I posted on our Facebook page, and again, we can talk about that another day. And I go home and I say, what a glorious day we had in church today. We read the scriptures, we prayed, we sang a song, and we went home. People say, that's extraordinary? Wow, your church must be dead and dried up. That same church one time actually said this, their pastor said, the doxology, praise God from whom all blessing flows. He said, that's just a dead, dried up old song. Wow. Because it's not entertaining enough. The people are looking for an extraordinary move and the doxology just isn't extraordinary enough. But do you know the means of grace, if all we did today was showed up, read the scriptures together, if I stood up here and as we're going through Psalm 119, as we're reading through now on Sunday mornings that are called to worship, and I read the entire Psalm, which is 150 some verses, however many it is, that would have been an extraordinary meeting and the means of grace would have been extended. Now, if you go, go, to, church, go to work on Monday morning and say, hey, what did you do at church yesterday? And you say, well, we read through Psalm 119. And? What else? You see, the means of grace were not meant to be something that is about us. These things were meant to encourage us. It's amazing to me, people that struggle with assurance, they forsake one of the most important elements of the means of grace, and that's the assembling themselves together. Most people, and this is not a statement to indict anyone, I'm just telling you my experience has been, most people who struggle with assurance are out of church on a faithful basis. This is a glorious truth and a glorious means of grace to be able to gather together and encourage one another and assurance begins to build from those things. And yet, when something hard comes in our life, some struggle comes in our life, the first thing we abandon is our church. We say, it's just too hard to be there today. Folks, don't always be looking for extraordinary revelation. This is why, this is why the prosperity gospel people are getting it. That's why they're getting a grip is because they're putting on a show every single week and people say, well, that must really be where the touch of God is. So we have to understand that these means of grace, the study of the word, prayer, corporate worship, the preaching of the word, baptism, the Lord's Supper, Christian fellowship, these are all means of grace. So the confession concludes that some true believers may struggle with assurance of salvation due to various factors. Folks, one of the greatest roadblocks to our assurance is indwelling sin. The sin we refuse to give up. The sin we're holding on to so tightly because we're trying to hold hands with God and try to hold hands with the world 
And it's the very thing that's robbing our assurance is because we're trying to be double-minded. But the confession does insist that obtaining assurance is our responsibility. That's what 2 Peter 1, making our dil- being diligent to make our calling and election sure. So we are to do anything and all things we can do to make ourselves certain and have this assurance. True assurance of salvation does not lead to carelessness or sin. In other words, if I truly have assurance, I'm not going to be... That's what they mean by that last expression. Look what it says, and we'll finish here. He says, uh, Without extraordinary revelation, the right use of means attained thereunto, and therefore it is the duty of everyone to give all diligence to make his calling and election sure, that thereby his heart may be enlarged in peace and joy in the Spirit, in love and thankfulness to God, and in the strength and cheerfulness in the duties of obedience... The proper fruits of this assurance, so far is it from inclining men to looseness. In other words, man cannot just flippantly say it really doesn't matter. An obedient walk, a repentance of sin, the use of the ordinary means of grace. These are the things that help build our assurance. But we cannot connect the dots and simply say, if you don't have assurance today, you're unsaved. But I can say this, everyone who is a believer, everyone who has called on the name of the Lord, everyone who has repented and believed, it is our duty and our responsibility to make our calling and our election sure. And we're to take every step necessary to do that. Assurance is not optional. He wants us to be working towards that. He wants us to be building towards that. He wants us to be sure. But somehow we've gotten this in our mind that this is just God's just going to give it to us we're supposed to do not to gain salvation but there's nothing in scripture that says that we're not supposed to do things for our assurance because those things we should be doing i know it's been a little bit long this morning i appreciate your patience so i hope that'll help you uh, in in how we view this Uh, let me give you a couple moments